short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. The most powerful explosion ever witnessed by human eyes. Can we forge against these enemies? Their arsenals of weapons of mass destruction. Historic moment for the international community. Uh, first, what I got from nuclear disarmament treaty to be concluded in more than 20 years. Delegates, ladies and gentlemen, I now declare the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons open. No matter what obstacles we face, we will keep moving. The treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons provides the pathway forward at a moment of great global crisis. It is a light in a dark time. Tonight, we march through the streets of Oslo with torches aflame. Let us follow each other out of the dark night of nuclear terror. There are millions of people across the globe us to shoulder to shoulder with those campaigners to show hundreds of millions more that a different future truly is possible. We must not tolerate this insanity any longer. Don't give up. Keep pushing. And those who say that that future is not possible need to get out of the way of those making it happen. Let this be the beginning of the end of nuclear weapons. This is WBEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live at www.wbew.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. On the air every Sunday at noon, we are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. And you can also find us on Facebook um, at Indigo Radio and also on Instagram and SoundCloud and iTunes podcast. Um, The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and not the radio station. Um, My name is Nina Kunimoto. I'm a local educator and a doctoral student at UMass Boston. And this is, I'm Becca Polk, and I'm a teacher in Springfield, Vermont, and also a graduate and professor in the Spark Teacher Institute program here in Brattleboro. And we also have with us in the studio, Janaki Natarajan. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. So um, our topic for today is Hiroshima, Nagasaki, uh, U.S. bombing of those cities and um, nuclear war. So on August 6, 1945, the United States dropped the atomic bomb on the city of Hiroshima in Japan. And on August 9th, um, the U.S. dropped another bomb on Nagasaki. And the horrific after effects sparked a resistance against nuclear war, but it also maintained uh, a war, a continued nuclear war. Um, Daniel Ellsberg wrote an article in Monthly Review in 1981 um, and he said that in the precise, the U.S. used nuclear weapons in the precise way that a gun is used when you point it at someone's head in a direct confrontation, whether or not the trigger is full. So today we also 
interviewed Reiko Kato, who is a professor of intercultural communications, pedagogy, and contemporary social issues and diversity and inclusion and equity at Kyushu University of Technology. Institute of Liberal Arts, and we talked to her about Japan's role in imperialism in the past and the present, and we also talked to her about how uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, is remembered today in Japan and uh, the resistance movements against the use of nuclear weapons. So the clip that you heard at the beginning of our show was from an organization or group called the Habakusha Rebellion. And they are working to um, get as many people they can to sign on to a petition right now so that we can ban nuclear weapons, so that they will never be used. The elimination of nuclear weapons is their ultimate goal. And we'll talk a little bit more about this group in the, later on in the show. Um, but I just wanted to you know, think about uh, you know, one of the challenges is that we want to think about nuclear weapons as part of the larger U.S. military and U.S. foreign policy strategy. So, Nina, you want to talk a little bit about how, like, as you mentioned, the threat of nuclear weapon, the use of nuclear weapon or the threat of it has been used in the past? Absolutely. So um, nuclear, the nuclear dimension of U.S. foreign policy um, is has been consistent since um, the end of World War II. And um, so the following and the following are only a handful of times that nuclear weapons have been threatened to be used by the United States. Um, and I only just highlight a few. So Truman considered using nuclear weapons against Chinese communists um, at the Chosin Reservoir in November 1950. Um, and, and the U.S. continued to use threat um, of nuclear weapons against China to maintain settlement in Korea, and that was under Eisenhower. And Eisenhower's directive to the Joint Chiefs during the Lebanon crisis in 1958 to prepare to use nuclear weapons, if necessary, to prevent an Iraqi move into the oil fields of Kuwait. Sounds familiar. Um, and before and during the Vietnam conflict, nuclear weapons were on the table numerous times. Um, and not to mention, uh, we last year we did a show on... Um, on around this time about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and we talked we focused a lot on the bombings of the Marshall Islands and the impact that has had on the people there so um feel free to listen to the show it's on Facebook from last year so as the world commemorates the U.S. bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki the question for us is really knowing the horrific nature of nuclear war and the use of nuclear energy with the, blow, the plants blowing up, um, the real potential threat to all of humanity is known. So why have we not abolished the use of nuclear weapons? We'll be exploring that throughout the show today. We're going to go to an interview right now um, with one of our friends who is in Japan, Reiko Kato, and we'll jump right in. She introduces herself. Yes, um, my name is Reiko Kato, and um, I'm teaching at um, university uh, in a very rural area in South uh, Japan. And um, I teach um, I teach engineering students uh, the courses like intercultural communication yes. and um, diversity, inclusion, and equity. It's basically preparing the students to work with people from different cultural background. 
I've been in my position for, I think, this is my fourth year at the university. Which university is it? And what, where in Japan? It's called Kyushu, uh, Kyushu Institute of Technology. Mm-hmm. And the main campus is in Kita Kyushu City, but uh, my campus is in Izuka City in Fukuoka Prefecture. And I also want to point out to our listeners that you are um, a PhD and you got your PhD at UMass Amherst, and you're also very connected to Brattleboro. So, yeah, thank you so much for being on Indigo Radio today. Um, yeah, we want to just um, always hold dear in our heart all the people who were killed in the U.S. dropping bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And to start out our interview, we wanted to know how these, um, the bomb dropping, the US dropping on Japan, how is this remembered in Japan today? Okay. Um, how it's remembered in Japan? Well, it's, it's been 74 years now, and I, it's every year in August, we have the peace memorial ceremonies in both in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it's been like a traditional thing that you we always do. Um, I also know that uh, there's, uh, there's a group called um, Council Against Atomic and Hydrogen Bombs. And they organize marches going all over Japan, visiting all 47 prefectures, delivering peace messages. Um, and also, like the Izuka city where I live, in the morning of uh, August 6th, that they make public, like they make a public announcement and asking people to join the silent uh, silence memory. Um, but it's I feel it's becoming more like uh, symbolic. It's just that uh, we automatically do it. Um, but as I, uh, what I feel is that we are not enough, there is not enough talking about it among ourselves. What do you think needs to be talked about more that's not being talked about? No, uh, being talked about any uh, experiences. Well, I understand that the survivor is becoming very, very old. Mm. So it's really hard yeah. to, that, that one, of, one of the challenges, how do we talk about it? Uh, when I was a child, uh, it was. Uh, we would go to the school. We'll have school visits to Hiroshima or Nagasaki, and they would organize uh, like a um, seminar with a survivor, a hibakusha, and we will hear their like firsthand experience of genbaku. But um, now they are becoming really old, like 80, 90 years old, and it's um, get, getting hard to hear those stories. So it's the challenge is how do we pass on the memory to the next generation. But when I talk about it, it's not my experience. So it's um, it's kind of, I feel like it's been, whenever I speak out, it's a, like a politicized topic. So it's hard to talk, but we need to figure out how to pass on the memory, the collective memory. Absolutely. And within this passing on of the collective memory um, that needs to happen, I'm also curious how nuclear weapons being used today or the threat of nuclear weapons being used today is discussed right now in Japan. In Japan, well, 
you know, the, in 2017, the UN adopted the treaty called uh, Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, and Japan did not sign the treaty. The reason that given by the government was that we are under the um, uh, we well we are aligned with U.S. Uh, U.S. government and we are protected by the nuclear weapons which U.S. owns and therefore at this po moment this point it's difficult to prohibit all the nuclear weapons or so it doesn't it doesn't make sense to prohibit nuclear weapons. Well, maybe the treaty itself is, um, I know that, what I know is that um, countries which has nuclear weapons are not signing up, so it, it's, it's not the perfect treaty, but um, we, it's, in Japan, it's not again necessary against nuclear weapons was a kind of striking news for me. But what also uh, surprising to me was that my students, college students, that they didn't hear any news. They said they didn't hear any anything about this until I told them they were surprised. And so the discussion among young people, I'm not sure are happening. Um, I feel like it's not happening. Right. <clears throat> so um, I, I'm just very curious because I've done a lot of reading about um, Japan's colonization of Taiwan. And one of the things that came up was that Japan, and that's why I use the word sort of hide behind their experience um, of being victims of US bombing, um, to not talk about their own, Japan's own imperial past. Um, and so what do you think about that? Yeah, well, that's certainly, I think, is one of the discourse, um, very academic discourse. That, um, and I think it's true that um, in 1980s, probably, or 90s, it was the tendency that um, we focused on the um, Hiroshima Nagasaki, and we didn't talk about our invasion. That's uh, natural. Uh, that's I think was a um, very prominent discourse in the academia. But right now, I think there's a slightly ch changing that um, while Japan's trying to. Uh, militarize or the justify the self-defense force for so for long now. It's, be, it's being uh, how do you say um, prevented because we have the Article Nine Constitution, uh, Japanese Constitution, which is a peace uh, peace article that uh, it doesn't allow Japan to have a military. But the Abe Abe cabinet that, uh, has been trying since the beginning that to amend the constitution and now so the kind of like a public discourse is shifting it feels like uh, what uh, Abe, Prime Minister Abe is saying that all the country well I know it's not true but all the country has military so Japan should also have military to become a normal part normal country so the normalization, I know it's used in different contexts and it's not a bad thing, but normalization kind of like it's normal to do this. It's normal, the imperial past, it was a war time. So it's uh, normal things to invade, normal things to have uh, people post labor, normal things to have comfort women. It's kind of, it's a discourse that they are trying to, I, I think it's create right now. So it's not, I don't feel, it's more like hiding, but it's more like uh, 
saying it openly and making it like a, something like it's nothing special. Mm. So I think, and I think you had said it's a more of a justification of yeah. um, Japan's actions against um, China, Manchuria, Taiwan, Philippines. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could talk about any resistant movements that are happening throughout Japan in connection to the world to both the increased militarization but also nuclear weapons. Well, there's it's a, a we um the we I guess I shouldn't be saying we but there are long tradition in Japan um with the, uh, resistance against nuclear weapon and also the militarization. Since World War II, the public sentiment was that it was a so terrible, horrific experience, not only for those that Japan for people in the country that Japan invaded, but also for Japanese citizens, um, including Okinawans. So the, there was a like public public uh, sentiment was like we should not repeat the history and the, the tradition of resisting against government move, but I think the shift came in late 1990s that it's, um, um, and those, sorry, those people are still there. There are many people are still resisting, and it's certainly uh, one of the strong resistance, but, but now it's becoming, I think, is more and more difficult to talk in public because of the censorship. The, you may have heard the art exhibition news that was uh, crossed, cancelled because of the uh, threat from I don't know whom, but uh, many people. I, I heard like 200 threats per day. Um, but and oh, hang on one second, just to give um, because just to give the the listener a little bit of context. So you're talking about the um, the exhibition um, of the comfort women. Uh, yes. Aichi Prefecture, like a week ago or this past week, and the government chose to shut the exhibit down because of the threats of protest. Is, is that right? Yeah, well, the government, meaning the Aichi Prefecture government, yeah, uh, yeah, not yeah. the Japanese government. Yeah. Yes. Um, that's like, so that's the atmosphere that we, uh, it's, I think it's, um, Freedom of, of expression or freedom of media, but the, in ourselves, I think there are more and more self censorship, and it's becoming very hard to talk about. Uh, well, it's hard to talk politics in Japan to begin with, but it's becoming like when um, the Hiroshima nuclear bomb um, militarization is all connected. Immediately connecting to the comfort women issue, which is more becoming a Korea and Japan economic problem, <laughs> is uh, kind of the at the base because they are trying to sanction each other at, right now. Mm -hmm. But they are using the issue to kind of shut people shut people out. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's really um, becoming hard to talk about. But I'm sure that uh, I'm sure, well. I'm sure that people will continue to resist and uh, will continue to move. But if you look at the Japanese media, it's really clear right now that who is reporting what news, 
and most of the uh, resistance movement is not reported on the big media, big news media. And rather, that the, the more the attention is given to the anti-resistance group. And how do you think this censorship connects to um, the Japanese's relationship with the United States and potentially their goals as allies in the world? Well, Japan and the um, uh, Abe, Prime Minister Abe and Trump is very uh, trying. Uh, Prime Minister Abe is trying to be very good ally to U.S. and Trump administration. I don't know what Trump administration think about Abe, but um, of course, the Japan's been uh, um, hosting the U.S. military bases, and uh, they are now asking Japan to take more active role. Um, so it's influenced uh, influence certainly by the U.S.-Japan relationship. Uh, 2013, they, they Japan passed their own security uh, security uh, bill, which which allows Japan to be more active in the military, not the military um, partnership, but also like exporting military, uh, exporting weapons as well. So it's, I, I'm not sure if, if it's for the, for the partnership sake or for the Japan's um, economic sake that Abe is trying to change all this, but um, it's, it's, of course, it's part of the, the uh, U.S.-Japan relation is uh, having a big influence on it. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, is there anything else you'd like to sort of communicate to our listeners? Well, um, uh, one of the teacher teaching in Japan, I just would like to share that. So now I face um, big challenges personally, like how do I young people especially Japan cutting fund in education for the universities mm-hmm. that uh, we are we are asked to um, apply for the competitive funding to get our research project going so um, and one of the big funder uh, one of the funder is the Ministry of Defense and it's been really a concerning situation mm-hmm. and uh, be teaching at the Institute of Technology the young students, um, I do every day feel that it's, uh, it's uh, our responsibility is really, really, um, how do you say, heavy that we need to teach students the situation, uh, the social situation, what's happening in the society, and so that they can make right decision when they become researchers or engineers, mm-hmm. so that their invention, their ideas are not used for the destruction. Um, well purpose and um, I really would like to have more of this kind of discussion. It, it helps me to clarify my thinking as well. So um, this kind of collaboration between not uh, not people not only people in Japan but international collaboration, I think it's really important. And, uh, so I appreciate uh, this uh, chance that you gave me to talk today. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio. And if you're just joining us, um, our topic today is looking at nuclear weapons globally, um, but also to commemorate the U.S. bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we just heard an interview with um, 
Reiko Kato, who is a professor of intercultural communications, pedagogy, contemporary social issues, and diversity, inclusion, and equity at Kyushu Institute of Technology in Japan. Um, and she had talked to us about uh, how Hiroshima Nagasaki remembered and also um, how to remember and how to talk about nuclear war and weapons um, today. So we're going to go to a song break. Um, and this song is by a Japanese artist. It was written in 1974. And it was actually the first song written by a Japanese person about the, the bombing, a U.S. bombing in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Her name is Hibari Misoda. And the song is titled Ippon no Enpitsu, which means in English, one pencil. Um, and it focuses on a woman's final moments uh, on August 6th before the bomb drops. Thank you. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WBEW FM 107.7 Brattleboro Community Radio Station. And our topic today is uh, nuclear weapons and we're commemorating the U.S. bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So we heard an interview from Reiko Kato, who is a professor in Japan. And so uh, we're going to discuss, you know, things that um, stuck out to us within that interview. So, Jonica, I don't know if you have something that you're thinking of or something that stuck out to you. I'm really glad that uh, you had Reiko Kato on, both of you, uh, Becca and Nina, because she's so clear. And also she's part of a many years movement uh, in Japan with a number of people from the north to the south not only about uh, uh, atomic weapons and Nagasaki and Hiroshima, but also racism, supremacy, indigenous rights. So there's a lot of work that she's done and many of her comrades have done. But for me, um, the past brings up so much clarity and lucidity to the present. And you will recognize a sentence from the White House that was recently said, uh, listening to Truman. And uh, Truman said, the world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. That was because we wished in this first attack to avoid, insofar as possible, the killing of civilians. So I'm sure you remember the recent sentence about that. But that's a preposterous statement because 100,000 people were killed. Um, and almost all of them were civilians. And Nagasaki, of course, was chosen because of their concentration of activities and population. And one of the things we should remember is that Hiroshima was a uranium bomb whereas Nagasaki was a plutonium bomb. And so we'll come back to that in a, in a few minutes. But um, th these two bombs being dropped on that particular date was very important because the Russian, uh, the Soviet Union was just about to enter uh, this particular aspect of the war. And that, the bomb was dropped just a day before that happened, which meant that Japan surrendered to the United States mm -hmm. and not to Russia, which meant that the um, surrender meant that the occupation of post-war Japan and the Pacific theater, as this was called, would be in U.S. hands. So I think, Becca, you were talking about the current situation with the, with the Pacific. Yeah. And that you're absolutely right. 
Yeah, I mean, last night I was watching the John Pilger film that was mentioned in the first show that Nina and Chris did last year about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and an image just sticks out to me of the U.S. military bases described as a noose around China. Mm-hmm. And really, I see that as the beginning, the um, Japan's surrender to the U.S. as the really the beginning of a f- increased military occupation of the Pacific Islands. Um, we're talking about the Philippines and Indonesia and East Timor and on and on and on we could go, right? And so for me, that brings in a different purpose of why the U.S. dropped the bomb on Japan. It brings in both the economic and the military strategy of the whole region, Mm -hmm. that it wasn't just about Japan and an evil empire. Mm -hmm. And I guess, like, as you were talking, it just reminded me of... Israel, because in that region, the Pacific, it's Japan that's our main ally that helps us create that that circumstance. And then in the Middle East, we have Israel to help us create um, a place where we make war and dominate. Yeah, and the other connection that I made to Israel is that idea of victimization, mm-hmm. um, commemorating the horrible, real, real horrible things that have happened to people as a tactic to not look at the horrible things that a country is doing now. Absolutely. And just recently, at least a day ago, the uh, Israeli military is talking about a strategy of erasing history. Mm. And so with, uh, with Reiko's work and, her, and her, uh, the whole work of ALA, the Africa, Asia, Latin America support group, how do we write the history of what Japan did in terms of the ruling class of Japan did in relation to, um, you know, imperialism and racism and militarism? But um, before you move on, I just want to make a comment about that. This is something that, as a social studies teacher, I have a um, deep sense of shame in the way that the U.S. schools teach about World War II and about the U.S. involvement. Um, And it's so much so that within the dominant thought, without even a moment's uh, thought, people are justifying the attacks. Um, You know, you can, we could go through all the different justifications that exist. I'm sure people are very familiar with it. You know, fascism, or they attacked first, or this or that. And it masks the real nature of U.S. imperialism and U.S. capitalism today. And the very glorification of war. Mm -hmm. Um, In relation to social studies, um, people really should read the 20th century uh, and the people's history of the United States by Howard Zinn. And there's also a brilliant little book uh, on atomic diplomacy by Gar Alperovitz which I think people could look at. But I want to recall a question, if you will, of A.J. Musty. A.J. Musty was a revolutionary pacifist. And uh, he said in 1941, the problem after a war is with the victor. He thinks he has just proved that war and violence pay. Who will now teach him a lesson? And so we should be very clear that with the control 
of the world's economy, the political economy, the war uh, brought higher you know, prices for farmers and higher wages within the United States. But what it does, and uh, you remember Randolph Bourne's sentence, war is the health of the state. Mm -hmm. And the state is the executive committee of the oligarchs. And the war is the health of the state. Well, what does that mean? What does it, what does it do? The war rejuvenated American capitalism. Mm -hmm. The biggest gains were in co corporate profits, which rose from 6.4 billion in 1940 to 10.8 billion in 1944, which is four years later. But enough of that was trickled down, if you will, to the farmers and the workers and so on. Uh, to add to their ideology of glorification of war. And can I add to, to um, neutralize any form of resistance against the, the system that created this? So we're going to go to a short clip. It's um, a woman's analysis about the U.S. war in Iraq. Um, and kind of putting into question what this so-called war on terror really means. We have an obligation to every last victim of this illegal aggression because all of this carnage has been done in our name. Since World War II, 90% of the casualties of war are unarmed civilians, a third of them children. Our victims have done nothing to us. From Palestine to Afghanistan to Iraq to Somalia to wherever our next target may be, their murders are not collateral damage. They are the nature of modern warfare. They don't hate us because of our freedoms. They hate us because every day we are funding and committing crimes against humanity. The so-called war on terror is a cover for our military aggression to gain control of the resources of Western Asia. This is sending the poor of this country to kill the poor of those Muslim countries. This is trading blood for oil. This is genocide. And to most of the world, we are the terrorists. In these times, remaining silent on our responsibility to the world and its future is criminal. And in light of our complicity in the supreme crimes against humanity in Iraq and Afghanistan and ongoing violations of the UN Charter and international law, how dare any American criticize the actions of legitimate resistance to illegal occupation. Our so-called enemies in Afghanistan, Iraq, Palestine, our other colonies around the world, and our inner cities here at home are struggling against the oppressive hand of empire, demanding respect for their humanity. They are labeled insurgents or terrorists for resisting rape and pillage by the white establishment, but they are our brothers and sisters in the struggle for justice. The civilians at the other end of our weapons don't have a choice, but American soldiers have choices. And while there may have been some doubt five years ago, today we know the truth. Our soldiers don't sacrifice for duty, honor, country. They sacrifice for Kellogg, Brown, and Root. They don't fight for America, they fight for their lives and their buddies beside them because we put them in a war zone. 
They're not defending our freedoms. They're laying the foundation for 14 permanent military bases to defend the freedoms of ExxonMobil and British Petroleum. They're not establishing democracy. They're establishing the basis for an economic occupation to continue after the military occupation has ended. Iraqi society today, thanks to American help, is defined by house raids, death squads, checkpoints, detentions, curfews, blood in the streets, and constant violence. We must dare to speak out in support of the Iraqi people who resist and endure the horrific existence we brought upon them through our bloodthirsty imperial crusade. We must dare to speak out in support of those American war resistors, the real military heroes who uphold their oath to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, including those terrorist cells in Washington, D.C., more commonly known as the legislative, executive, and judicial branches. Frederick Douglass said, those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are people who want crops without plowing the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the roar of its many waters. The struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it may be both, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. Every one of us, Every one of us must keep demanding, keep fighting, keep thundering, keep plowing, keep speaking, keep struggling until justice is served. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio 107.7 FM WVEW. And we are, our topic today is nuclear war and weapons. Janaki, you had some more to add to our conversation. Yeah, I just, uh, I think this is a, very crucial kind of experience of mine that I had when I was in Hiroshima at the museum. And one of the notices, if you will, that was said there was that uh, one of the reasons that the military in the U.S. wanted to drop the bombs was to see how humans mm. uh, reacted or what happened to humans mm-hmm. uh, after, the, after the bombs were, were dropped. And you remember that one of them was... Uh, uranium and the other plutonium Mm -hmm. and so the dropping of those bombs really altered the way in which scientists viewed ionizing radiation Mm -hmm. and that was a very very important aspect of it so this was in a sense experimentation uh, data gathering at what expense Uh, the dropping of these two bombs and different kinds of bombs to see what effect they had Mm -hmm. And for the next five years, there was a media blackout on this uh, longitudinal study that was, that was done. And after five years of uh, gathering data from survivors and from dead bodies and everything else, uh, and documenting uh, the effects, uh, this was on cancer, cancer mortality, non-cancer, you know, what are the effects? And so we should be very aware that technology and and science are often, if not almost always, at the service of capital and of imperialism and profit. Uh, So that was one of the things that I really, and there's a very, very uh, recent book from Hiroshima to Fukushima Mm -hmm. to you, a primer on radiation and health, which which has got a lot more information uh, on the radiation effects research, there's actually a foundation on that, which was, which has been 
uh, going since 1975 and before. And let's not forget that the um, testing and using of humans as guinea pigs for nuclear weapons was not just in the dropping of the bombs in Japan. Uh, in right before that, the Trinity test in New Mexico was the first like testing that's documented and. Like you said, the studies of cancer from doctors of people not even near the site, but in areas that um, where the radiation went because of the wind, mm -hmm. though it was known right away, you know, in those next coming years, the devastating effects on health and those were hidden. And also the Marshall Islands, yeah. the effects of health with people's thy yeah. thyroid cancer. Yeah. And, and the there was hydrogen, sorry, yeah. hydrogen bombs in mm -hmm. Marshall Islands. And the Bikini Atoll and where the golden rule was a boat of uh, war resistors mm. who actually sailed into that area in protest, oh, wow. just to remember. Yeah, it was Greenpeace who took people off the island eventually. Oh. Exactly. Yeah, well, that's a good segue into talking about resistance. Um, so you had mentioned at the very beginning, Becca, and you played a clip of the hibakusha, which in Japanese means survivor of um, nuclear bombs. So uh, you said that you had seen, uh, at, when you were at the Free Minds, Free People conference, you, you'd seen a presentation by someone who's from an organization. Um. Yeah, it's the uh, Peace Institute okay. who is working with the Hibakusha mm -hmm. Rebellion. Um, and their main, like, their main statement right now is that we, the Hibakusha, call on all state governments to conclude a treaty to ban and eliminate nuclear weapons. The average age of the Hibakusha now exceeds 80. It is our strong desire to achieve a nuclear weapon-free world in our lifetime so that succeeding uh, generations of people will not see hell on earth ever again. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I recommend everyone to go to their website and check out the work that they're doing. They're um, people all over the world mm -hmm. giving lectures, sharing their stories, and really, like uh, Reiko said, keeping that collective memory alive. Mm -hmm. But again, I come back to what, what else can be done? Right. What can we here in the U.S., knowing that our government continues to stockpile weapons, what can we do to to resist and join with the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. How many weapons do we need to destroy the earth how many times over? Yeah. And who has these weapons? In our other shows as well, like we always say that it's really important to um, recognize individual stories and our collective stories as well of, of people and looking at issues. Um, but we shouldn't end our analysis there because um, the danger of focusing solely on nuclear weapons is that we will get stuck in, we will get stuck there. So, and then we fail to see that this is a piece within a larger system with other moving parts, a system that systematically exploits people and the environment. And we have to pay equal attention to the other moving parts that are, um, interacting with this issue. Um, so that's why it's really important to, and like, you know, Reiko doesn't just focus on nuclear weapons. She focuses on indigenous issues as well as racism and, because they're all interconnected. Um, and 
you know, what, what is it that maintains the polarization of, of people on, on the globe? And I think the clip that was just played um, about the war on terror starts to make us think about nuclear weapons within the context of the U.S. military strategy around the world. And for what purpose do we have over 180 bases around the world that um, stockpile weapons, like Janaki said, nuclear weapons are just one type of weapon that's being stockpiled. And Obama administration committed trillions and trillions of dollars over the next 30 years to continue to expand, maintain, and um, like increase the possibility of nuclear weapons being used. I think especially at this time, we've got to pay very close attention to the common life of the people that live in the world and in this country who are in a similar situation, whether they are white or whether they are black or brown or any other color, that the common life of, of these people is more common than it is with the top 1%. And so when we are deliberately told that white people have to be aware of their own supremacy, this is a way of not making us look at the commonality of the people at large. And we must, and, and uh, Reverend Barber said it very well the other day, that we really have to pay attention to this now mm. and not be afraid. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I just think about um, the hidden nature of profit that's being made from weapons mm -hmm. um, as part of that not seeing our commonality. That there are weapon contractors who are being pay, being given billions of dollars of contracts to improve our nuclear weapons, you know? And um, how do we start to look at the use of military as continuing to profit a few people while the rest of the people become poorer and poorer? And I just um, would like to leave with one more thing um, that I've been thinking a lot about with nuclear war. And that's how do we penetrate the consciousness of people in the U.S.? When nuclear is mentioned, all of a sudden, I, can, I, I guarantee I walk into my class and I ask the kids in seventh grade, what did they think about nuclear weapons? And they'll immediately start talking about North Korea and Iran. And I just feel like this is a, uh, does a big disservice and it hides the fact that the US is one of the biggest arms dealers in the world, one of the biggest purveyors of violence in the world, and also is stockpiling and holding nuclear weapons and is threatening to use them at the, at, when needed. And so I just think that, um, you know, if we look at just alone, one type of nuclear arsenal that the U.S. has, uh, the, it's called the Ohio-class nuclear submarine, so that this would be 14 nuclear missiles launched. It could, the potential for 24 additional missiles and 12 independently targeted megaton warheads. This would, any country that the U.S. aimed 
it would take out all the major cities in this country and the targets would be obliterated and millions of people would die. Not alone, not that alone, but this would result in nuclear winter. The fire and the smoke and the particles in the air would make it so that food was no longer available on this planet. And I just really think that the severity of what we're facing as a humanity, all of us together, is not uh, seen as clearly when we, we, the U.S. people, are just pointing our fingers at quote-unquote axes of evil. And you know that we here, living in Brattleboro, face also the decommissioning of a nuclear plant down in Vernon. The question is not only what to do with the weapons, but also to do with what is it about peace. Is there clean nuclear, just as there is clean coal? Mm. What should we do with this? Uh, look at Hanford. So we really have to look at uh, not only decommissioning, but what to do with future such nuclear waste. And that becomes yet another way of having to look at our own lives very differently. So we will continue to be part of working towards a nuclear-free world. Um, and in order to do that, we must also face some of the big oligarch and states that support nuclear war. So um, we have a, a Spark student. So Indigo Radio is also connected with the Spark Teacher Training Institute. Um, and we have a Spark student here who is going to um, give us an announcement for and an event tomorrow. And the Teacher Institute uh, trains teachers from kindergarten through 12th grade. And we have seminars of different, at different times and short conferences. So I hope people will um, come to them and attend them and be part of our hopefully expanding group. So here is our sparkler. Hi, my name is Kavya Ganesh. I am a Spark student and tomorrow Spark Teacher Education Institute is kicking off the year with a showing of a film in Claire's classroom at 6 p.m. A, 6 p.m. p.m. at the library community room. The film highlights a local teacher work in a two-room schoolhouse in Westminster West. Claire's guided students to understand their relationship to the world. Thank you. We're going to go out with one last song. Nina, can you introduce the song? Sure. Um, so this song is by another Japanese artist. Um, his name is Eikichi Yazawa. Um, he actually recorded this song in English, and it was for um, an English-speaking audience. Um, his father was a survivor of the bombing in Hiroshima. He actually pushed back on singing uh, the song initially because he felt that it was exploitative um, of the experiences of the people of Hiroshima, but he, he ended up uh, singing the song anyways, and it's called Flash in Japan. Did we learn a lesson 
With this 